You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. Good morning, everyone. Um, As we start our new series, we turn to Matthew, the book of Matthew. Um, And this morning we're starting at Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. That's right, 17. Uh, We're reading through to chapter 5, verse 1. And that's on page 857 in our church Bibles. Page 857. At this time Jesus had left Nazareth and he went to live in Capernaum by the sea in Galilee. From then on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. As he was walking along the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Follow me, he told them, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother, John. They were in a boat with Zebedee, their father, preparing their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Now Jesus began to go all over Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Then the news about him spread throughout Syria. So they brought him all those who were afflicted, those suffering from various diseases and intense pains, the demon-possessed, the epileptics and the paralytics, and he healed them. Large crowds followed him from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea and beyond the Jordan. And when he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Thanks, John. Please be seated, everybody. Sermon on the Mount. Mm-hmm. Sermon on the Mount, the, one of the greatest discourses of teaching in the history of hum, humanity. Just w- really, without question, one of the most powerful shaping forces, on, certainly on Christian life and Christian living, but even if you're here this morning and you're not, I wouldn't call yourself Christian, the, the, the shaping power of the Sermon on the Mount on Western civilization is incredible. So big, in fact, that you probably don't notice it until it's pointed out to you. Even just if you want to look at the way that some of the words of Jesus in this sermon have made their way into the kind of um, nomenclature of the culture around us, you'll see that as we work our way over the next 12 weeks, verse by verse, through 
this sermon from Matthew chapter 5 through to chapter 7. Uh, we're going to spend the next 12 weeks looking at the teaching itself, trying to break it down and understand its application for us as believers here today. Uh, but before we get there, before we kind of ascend the mountain and hear Jesus' teaching, I feel like we need to set up a little bit of a base camp and get our bearings first. Uh, I didn't realise we needed to do this until Thursday afternoon, um, but I got to that point and thought, no, we, 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 there's too much here. There's too much preparation work needed to be done before we can, before we can sit down with Jesus' disciples on the mountaintop. And I think it's really important this morning that we do take the time just to get our bearings. Since we moved out here, it's now 10 years that we've lived out here and I've spent all of that time spending all of my free time um, going out west and north and hiking in the ranges uh, and in the, the uh, gorge out in Werribee Way. And the first kind of seven years that I was doing that, I did it without any maps and I was just relying on, you know, the little trail markers that may or may not be there um, pointing you in the right direction, those little red reflector things. Um, and so what I did was spend that first seven years getting very lost because I have little to no sense of direction. You should know this about me. Um, you don't be surprised if one day you see me like walk to the back of the church and then realize I'm meant to be up the front. That's how bad I am when it comes to directions. And it's not really the, um, a great strength for someone who likes to hike in the wilderness. So anyway, the first seven years here I spent just getting lost. In fact, one time, Renee, she tells me that she had the, like, the rescue chopper on, uh, on alert because she hadn't seen me for about three or four hours after the time I was meant to get back, and it was true. I was completely lost. Anyway, um, the last three years, I invested in some software that gives me HD topographical maps of all of these areas that I like to get into and it's completely changed everything for obvious reasons, right? Getting your bearings, having a lay of the land, knowing the topography helps when you're trying to journey through uncharted waters. And so that's what I want to do this morning. I want us to get this kind of HD map of the sermon so that as we walk through it, we're not constantly trying to figure out where we are and what Jesus is talking about. And the way that I want to do that is just by establishing what I think is the purpose of Jesus' sermon. Every preacher worth their salt knows the purpose of what they're trying to communicate before they begin, right? They, and, and so I think it's important for us to know what Jesus is on about. What, what does he want out of the next 12 weeks as we read his words and then I want to look at six kind of key concepts that we are going to see come up over and over again as we look at his teaching. Now, we're going to focus on the narrative itself. I won't be like taking one big theme for each week. We're just going to read what he says and try and make sense of it and, and ask him to speak to us through it. But these concepts are ones that you're going to keep coming up against. So it's like, again, just like plotting the way for us or getting a sense of the, the, our bearings as we ascend the mountain to be with Jesus. Is that okay? Thank you, that one person. I appreciate that. We're going to do it anyway, so, I, you know. Um, you know what would help me right now is undoing this button. I don't know who they make these shirts for, 
It wasn't me. Slightly less holy, but more comfortable. Uh, and uh, that's the main thing. All right, now listen. Um, I want to talk about purpose. So let's establish what, what is Jesus, what is his purpose in, in, in putting together this sermon. We don't know if this is in the entirety of his sermon verbatim. Probably not. It's probably like a, a highlight reel of an extended period of teaching. We don't know if it was all at one period in one place or, or kind of stretched out over a few different sermons. It's not important. This sermon as we have it is, is what God has given us for our good in the uh, shape and style that he wants us to receive it in. And so we receive it with faith and we ask that God would, by his spirit, through his word, speak to us and change us to be more like his son who's preaching to us. Now, what is his purpose? There's obviously a lot of different ways of interpreting this sermon. And, uh, and um, one of... One of my biggest learnings and the thing that I have sort of changed my mind most about in preparing for, to preach through this series is a shift in my interpretation of it and how I receive it. So here's what just about everyone agrees on. Um, they agree that it's significant that Jesus goes to the top of a mountain to give this sermon. This is not just practical. Like there's a practical um, reason for his location of teaching at certain times, like you'll, you, you notice, I think in Luke's gospel, he's surrounded by crowds, or it might even be later in Matthew's gospel, I can't remember. Um, uh, uh, anyway, he's surrounded by a lot of people, and so he gets into a boat and just goes out a little way into the water. That's practical, right? It gives him a bit of space from the crowds. It also amplifies his voice. As you know, if you speak to someone across a lake, it it amplifies your voice, right? So practical. Here, there might be some practical element. There's lots of crowds, lots of people. Going up on a mountain gives them a little bit of distance. But there is more theological, symbolic significance here than practical significance. And the, and, and the theological significance is clear to you if you have read your Bible, particularly the Old Testament, because it's on mountains that God meets with his people. It's on mountaintops that God speaks to his people. And here you have this really strong relationship between Moses and Jesus. Moses going to the top of Sinai, given the commandments from God, the, the Old Testament law, and then returning to his people and presenting it to them. Jesus here on a mountaintop, that much greater than Moses because he's not receiving something from God but speaking as God. But the significance is here. We don't know exactly where this mountain is, though there is a tradition in church that there's this beautiful um, kind of um, ridge line overlooking the sea. And if you go there today, you can see there's a church that's uh, an ancient church there that marks the traditional um, location of Jesus giving the sermon. That I'm not so concerned about the physical location of it. It's the theological significance, the symbolism that's important here. God himself is speaking to his people. Jesus is the greater Moses. Now, here's where I think that's been an unhelpful in church history and where I have changed my perspective, and, and here's where we'll get to the purpose. Um, for a long time, particularly in the Protestant church, um, uh, and we received this, this interpretation of the Sermon on the Mount from the great Martin Luther, the great Reformation, uh, the great Reformer, 
he, he had in his mind, uh, and his followers after him, even to a greater extent, he had in his mind this sort of dichotomy, and he, and he seemed to view everything through this dichotomy, that is, the, the, the distinction between law and grace. He had these kind of filters on, he saw everything, is this law or is this grace? And so he read the Sermon on the Mount, and it's lofty, lofty ethic for Christian living. Like when Jesus says, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect, right? You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I say, if you look at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery with her in your heart, right? He read that and it was like, this is so impossible to keep. This bar has been set so high by Jesus and he saw him as the, the, the sort of Moses figure that he said, this must be law, Jesus is giving us law and the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount, therefore, is to drive us to despair. We can never keep this and so I despair of myself and that leads me to the gospel because God is gracious and forgives me even though I can't keep his law. That is a very popular interpretation. In fact, I was speaking to one of you recently and that was your interpretation of it. Yeah, this is really hard teaching but the purpose of it is really just to make us despair of ourselves and turn to God for grace. I don't think that's the purpose of Jesus in this sermon. There's nothing in the text, nothing that Matthew has written at all that would give you that impression unless you came with those glasses already on to see everything in that light. So if we take the glasses off, we extract ourselves from the Reformation history environment that Martin Luther was in that drove him to see things that way, we try and shed all of our cultural trappings from us and we just read it on its own terms, there's no reason to think that this is some kind of law that God is going to deliver us from. But it's a very pervasive thought, and maybe it's one you've had yourself. I saw on Facebook recently a pastor that I know um, friends with uh, who, wrote, who just ha- had this very provocative Facebook post that said, Lord, save us from the Sermon on the Mount. It's like, whoa, that's such a cynical view of what Jesus has said. But it's the view that you have if you see that this is just a law that we could never keep. The reason that it renders this whole sermon kind of useless and the reason I haven't got as much out of this sermon as I should have over the last 20 years of being a Christian is because if it is that, then, well, I've received grace. I've already got the grace bit, so it doesn't have any purpose for me. If it's just to get people to despair of themselves and throw themselves on God's mercy, well, I've already done that, so there's nothing much here for me. I don't think that's what's going on at all. I think it's the exact opposite of that. I think it's vital teaching for every Christian to receive and consume and saturate themselves in. And so here's here's how I've written it. The sermon, Sermon on the Mount, is a call to whole person, heart-deep discipleship to Jesus. It's a practical ethic for anyone who has repented of sin, enthroned Jesus as king, and now seeks to make all of life all about him, which nearly rhymes, which probably means it's true, right? It was a joke. I think that was my one joke for today. So, all right, moving on. It's a practical... No, not moving on. Let me just say it again, because this is a lot. 
It's a practical ethic. Jesus' teaching, what is it? It is teaching for you today to hear, to receive, to trust, and to act on a practical ethic in the kind of mould of a lot of other teachers throughout human history that lay out their kind of ethic for living. Jesus is a philosopher in that sense. And he has a philosophy for life that he lays out for us in this sermon. It's a practical ethic for anyone who has repented of sin, enthroned Jesus as king, and now seeks to make all of life all about him. We're going to come back to that over and over again because I want us to shed some of the other ways that we've approached this. Or not, if you disagree, then that's fine as long as your disagreement is born out of a reading of the sermon and not just some kind of inherited rubric for understanding it. This is a call to each one of us in the here and now not just some day later when we go into heaven, not just one day when I finally get a grip on this Christian thing, but here and now. And of course, none of us is going to keep it perfectly. Of course, we know that. And of course, this kingdom vision that Jesus is giving us is not going to come in its fullness until he comes and makes all things new. Of course. Those disclaimers don't... Uh, evaporate the practical meaning for us. This is for here and now. So, six key concepts. These are the ones that I want us to have in mind and, and, and just kind of imprint on now so that throughout the series we can say, ah, yes, I know what he means when he says kingdom or hypocrisy or whatever. These are... These are the six. First of all, and these are in no particular order, first of all, righteousness. Righteousness is something that Jesus is going to come back to over and over and over again. Now, righteousness here is whole person, heart deep. I'm going to keep using those kinds of designations. Whole person. This is not something that you can do, you know, Sunday morning, yeah, I do this pretty well. The rest of the week, uh, I'm not that bothered. This is whole person, heart deep. So not surface. Not when everybody's watching. You know, I pray really fervently when, when I'm at the front at church, but through the week, I just can't be bothered. No, it's whole person, heart deep behavior that accords with God's nature, will, and kingdom. Every word in that is important if I do say so. Whole person, heart-deep behaviour that accords with God's nature, will and kingdom. This is living like Jesus lived. This is walking in God's will by the power of the Spirit. This is being doers of the word, not just hearers of the word. This is doing God's will. Doing God's will. This is not, and just you need to have this kind of worked out in your brain. This is not the righteousness that Paul speaks of in his letters. 
that we've talked a lot about, especially through that Romans 8 series. This is not the righteousness imputed to us when we trust in Jesus. This is not that exchange where Jesus takes our sin and gives us his righteousness. This isn't about salvation. Okay, so it's a little bit tricky because we use the same word. It's not that righteousness. This is practical, daily, doing God's will righteousness. Whole person, heart deep, behavior. How have you acted thus far today? Have you been a doer of God's will or a doer of your own? Have you been building God's kingdom or building your own? These are the questions that Jesus is going to keep raising with us. Are you doing God's will? Are you, a a shorthand way of describing it is, are you living like Jesus? A scriptural way of understanding it is, do you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and are you loving your neighbor as yourself? That's righteousness. That's living righteously. This is why Jesus says in his sermon in uh, chapter 7, verse 21, what does he say there? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. He's going to say a lot of things like that that should make you shudder a little bit. At the very least, it should shock you out of whatever zombie-like Christian living you've, been, you've slipped into over the years. This sermon is the antidote to nominal church going. Thank God. I never, I never want to get into it too much. I don't want to take it too seriously. I don't want, I don't want it to occupy all of my life, but I, I am really committed to showing up week to week. This will kill that if you, if you have ears to hear. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, not everyone who stands up and sings praises on Sunday morning, not everyone who serves in the soup kitchen will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. What is that? It's righteousness. It's whole of life, whole person. All of life, all about Jesus is the way we talk about it. It's heart deep behavior that accords with God's will, with his nature, who he is. Say, what's God like? What's the nature that I'm supposed to have? He's shown you. He revealed himself in Jesus. That's the example. What does righteous living really look like in the day-to-day? Read four Gospels. Jesus does it without fail, no day off, constantly lives a righteous life. And that's what he's calling us to in this, for the next 12 weeks. If you don't like that, if that's a little bit threatening, then that's all you're going to hear for the next 12, well, not next 12 weeks, next 12 sermons with a break for Easter. All right? The next three or four months, you're going to hear this over and over again, this call to righteousness. The opposite of that is the next key concept. It's hypocrisy. 
Hypocrisy is outward righteousness, like as my son would do, righteousness, outward righteousness, disconnected from the true inner person. It's actions disconnected from heart. Now, we need to be conscious of this because this is not how we use the word hypocrisy in our culture. It's slightly different, but importantly different. So when we talk about hypocrisy, we normally mean where words don't match up with actions. Like someone complains about all the rubbish in Lake Caroline, but as they're driving past, they throw rubbish out of their car window. That's a hypocrite in our nomenclature, right? The, uh, the guy over the road from us, Brian, my, my wife, Renee, because she's a sweetheart, she's like best friends with everyone in our street, and there's this older couple across the road Brian and Jenny, and uh, they are just the classic, like, Aussie battlers, and we just love them, and Renee has a special relationship, especially with Brian. Anyway, uh, it's my day off on Friday, and I heard a knock at the door, and uh, before I got there, I just heard, Jono, slacker. It's Brian. And by the way, it's not Brian from across the road, it's Brian. Um, it's Brian. He calls me a slacker because he knows I work at the church, which in his mind means I work Sunday mornings and every other day is off. So he's like, I need you, I need you, I need your muscle. So I got a, I'm selling my boat. I've had it since 1974 and I need you to carry it out the front for me. All right, so we did that. And then uh, that's a 10-minute job followed by two and a half hours of just chat him talking mostly. And, uh, and so anyway, in the course of our chat, he got on to like, this is why I hate church. And I love it when people talk to me like this because most people fake like some level of respect for the church or at least stop swearing. He does neither of those things. And uh, I'm not making fun of him at all. I love this guy. Anyway, so this is why I hate the church. And then he tells me this, and I don't know if any of this is true. It's almost certain that it's not entirely true. But anyway, he's like, I hate the Catholic Church because they're always going on about how we shouldn't have any landmines. And then who's the biggest manufacturer of landmines? The Fiat Group. And who owns part of the Fiat Group? The Catholic Church. So the hypocrites. And uh, I don't know if any of that's true. Just big disclaimer. No one sue me, all right? I'm just, I'm just I'm the messenger retelling a story. But that's the use that we make, right? That's how we, we talk about hypocrites and people level this accusation at the church all the time. They're always going on about, you know, godly living and then this is what they do. You know, the pastor who's always railing against homosexuality and then he gets caught, you know, with a young man. So this is how we use the word hypocrisy. That's not how Jesus uses it. Jesus' usage is not w- words contradicted by actions. His usage is actions not connected to heart. So these are righteous actions. This is fasting and praying and giving to the poor. The problem is not the action. It's that there's no heart behind it. So hypocrisy in his version would be, um, uh, you know, being a big advocate for getting rid of landmines, but not having any care for the kids who are getting blown up by them. Just wanting to be seen to be that one who advocates for getting rid of landmines. 
which in our culture, how important is this? Because everything is about what people see of me. It's, it's having this big campaign to clean up Lake Caroline with Red Door Church printed on our shirts and like showing everyone that we really, we're really making a difference here with no care for God's creation or whether or not we actually achieve much. So it's good, righteous, outward righteousness, outwardly walking in God's will, doing the kinds of things that God is interested in, setting people free from slavery or cleaning up someone's backyard or mowing the lawn for somebody or whatever, praying up the front of church, turning up to Monday uh, prayer meetings, but without any heart, without any true self, true person. So, for example, and you're going to see this all the way through, but in, uh, when he's speaking of um, doing good works before people, this is what he says in chapter 6, verse 2. Whenever you give to the poor, don't sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do. Remember, in the first century, hypocrite is just a Greek term for an actor who wears different masks. So don't just, it's just an outward thing. I'm not really a goblin, this is just a mask I'm wearing, right? I'm not really a righteous person. I'm not really invested in bringing God's kingdom to bear, but when I give to the poor, I just want people to see me, to be applauded by people. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward. They have their reward. Their reward is being seen. That's their reward. God sees the heart. Righteousness, hypocrisy, and then related to that is heart. Now, in Jesus' usage of the word, and this is the only thing that matters for us, and this is where we need to reform our modern understanding of heartness. Jesus, for Jesus, the heart is the true inner person. It's the real you. Once we get past the facade, the good church boy facade, or the Instagram facade, or whatever it is, once we get past that, who, who are you? That's your heart. And crucially, this is the seat of both emotional and mental faculties. So there is, in our mind, we, there's this distinction. In our mind, there's a distinction between heart and mind. Heart is my feelings, mind is my thoughts. Right? Heart is romantic, but mind is reasonable. That's not the case in Jesus' usage. The heart is both. It's, it's heart, it's, it's, it's emotions and mental faculties put together. Your true self, who you really are. It's like the Venn diagram of all those different parts of our psyche. In the middle is the heart, that's who we really are. So he will make reference over and again to the heart and the necessity for righteousness to be motivated not by outward appearance but by heart. Whole person, heart deep behaviour. So he says things like uh, chapter 6 verse 21, he says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He's not just saying where you put your money is the, reveals the things you love. 
That is true, but it's kind of a tautology. Like, obviously, you're not going to spend money on something you don't care about. It's more than that. He's saying, where you put your treasure, that's who you are. That's who you really are. Where your treasure is reveals who you are as a person. If you treasure God, his kingdom, and the gospel, and that is what you prize above all else, we see in your heart true righteousness. We see in your heart true discipleship. But you can say all of those things and really your treasure is elsewhere. This is where we get exposed and I pray to God that we will be exposed and I hope you're daily trying to expose hypocrisy. Where you've been led away from real heart deep allegiance to the King of Kings. This is why he can say something astonishing like Matthew 5 verse 8 in his famous Beatitudes, blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. Pure in heart. Their whole person pure. Not just externally. No good having a whitewashed tomb with rotting bones inside. He's going to take us all, and you can, this is another way of interpreting the Sermon on the Mount, is just like Jesus teaching on the importance of heartness. Where this isn't, you can tell this, is, this isn't law, because Jesus doesn't just give you a list of commands to keep. That would make things simple. No, he says, it's about your heart. So the question is, like, should you be playing video games? Should a Christian be playing video games? And very often, we don't have a black and white answer. We don't, well, we don't, yeah, it says in Leviticus 6 verse 5, Christians, thou shalt not play video games. God doesn't do that. He says rather, maybe, consult your heart. Should you be drinking alcohol? Maybe, maybe not. Consult your heart. That's what he's interested in. The the seat of your true inner person. We're going to have to probably just gut ourselves of all the Disneyfication of whatever we think following our heart means and our you know, heart being kind of just this romantic or ethereal thing and get back to what Jesus is really on about. It's, it's meat and bones and flesh and it's, it's you. It's who you really are. Righteousness, hypocrisy, heart, a couple of big ones, and I know I'm out of time, so we're going to motor through these. Father in heaven. This is huge for the Sermon on the Mount. Huge. You know, all, I think every time he talks to his disciples in the Gospel of Matthew and refers to God, he, except for one, I think, he says, your Father in heaven. He doesn't just say God or Yahweh, or he says, your Father in heaven heaven. It's really important for him that his disciples know this. And it's probably because the Jews in Jesus' day had an idea of God as Father, but he was Father of the nation of Israel. 
He was like a corporate father. Jesus is saying, no, no, it's more than that. He's your father in heaven. This is personal. And that phrase, Father in heaven, it brings together, so it combines this, this juxtaposition. It's, it's the intimate element of God's fatherhood, of everything that fatherhood means in a sort of perfect, ideal sense, combined with the transcendent element of his otherness, his holiness, his, his heavenliness, Father in heaven. Now, we don't get the shock of this because it's not brand new theology for us. Hopefully, you've grown up with this understanding. And at the very least, you have probably been praying the Our Father, as it's known colloquially, because it's the first line of Jesus' uh, prayer that he teaches his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount. You remember it's verse, what, 9 of chapter 6? Our Father in heaven. This is how he addresses, this is when, when, as he's teaching his disciples how to pray. It's our Father in heaven. May your name be holy. Like, hallowed be your name. Next line is, your kingdom come. And that's the next major concept. And this is like probably the most prominent concept in the whole sermon. And we don't have any time to talk about it right now. So uh, I'll just say... The kingdom of heaven, the reason Jesus uses kingdom of heaven in Matthew's gospel and in the other gospels he normally says kingdom of God is just because it's just a literary thing. So Matthew is writing for Jews, that's his audience, and Jews to this day really like strict Jews won't say God's name. They'll, they'll, they'll have, um, because it's out of reverence, so they'll substitute it with heaven or something like that. So in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus says, kingdom of heaven, and it means kingdom of God. So, kingdom of God, this is what it is. God's reign over the lives of people who enthrone him as king. Established here and now. Get that. Here and now. Here and now. Not some pie in the sky. Here and now. built, established, edified as people everywhere repent and receive God's rule in their heart. In their heart. The only reason the kingdom of heaven might be a little bit more difficult for us non-Jews is because we immediately think, oh, that's somewhere off somewhere in the space or in the ether or not yet here or whatever. No, you need to, this is the kingdom of heaven on earth. The kingdom of heaven is heaven and earth combined together. It's what Jesus brought with him from the moment he stepped into our midst. It's how he begins this whole discourse, this whole Sermon on the Mount thing is triggered in the, literal, in the literary sense in Matthew 4, 17. John read it for us. From then on, Jesus began to preach. What did he say? This is his message. Repent, because the kingdom of heaven has, have, heaven has come near. Even the word near is unhelpful, because it's still like, well, is it, how near is it? Is it like near like the sun? No, near like here. Like, it's me. It's Jesus himself. King, anointed king, 
That's what Christ means. That's what Messiah means. He is the king of the kingdom. He has brought it to bear, inaugurated in our midst, and it is built as people give him allegiance. Repent of self-deification, self-worship. Enthrone him as king of kings, giving their allegiance to him and receiving his good kingly rule in their heart. Remember? In the heart. That's the kingdom of heaven. And we're just going to have to come back to that some other time. Last of all, rewards. Rewards. This is the most underplayed key concept. Like, I don't even know, I don't have to know you, I don't have to know anything about you, and I just know that this is the most underplayed thing that we're going to come across Um, Because if you are a Protestant Christian, for the last 500 years, this has been underplayed out of a fear that our good works would be motivated by some kind of economic exchange. Now, that fear has to come to heal. It has to be made obedient to what Jesus actually says. And all through this sermon, he's going to offer you rewards as not just as a kind of, you get this at the end, um, so hold tight, but actually as a key motivation for living righteously. That's hard for some of us to digest. Jesus is going to say over and over again, there's rewards here. Don't forfeit them. So we find this hard because we're Protestants and also because we're Australian. And Australians are like the above all people on the earth are egalitarian, right? It's like everyone deserves a fair go. Everyone should get the same thing. We're in that sense kind of a little bit socialist in our understanding of how things should be dished out. And just Jesus is just not Australian, right? He's going to offer you rewards based on the way that you live, the way that you behave, the nature of your heart. He's going to encourage you to heap up treasures in heaven. Our culture is much more informed by a guy named Immanuel Kant. Some of you guys know him. His idea, his altruistic ethic was to the degree that you get something out of doing the right thing, it diminishes the goodness of the thing you do, which most of us believe somewhere. To the degree that you're getting something out of this, it makes it less altruistic. It makes it less good. Jesus doesn't believe that. He's like, do the right thing, the righteous thing, because you are made in God's image and that's what he is like, and do it because you're going to get amazing rewards. Those things aren't contradictory. He encourages suffering Christians, Ukrainian Christians, Chinese Christians. You in this room today, if you're struggling to keep step with Jesus, he encourages you throughout to seek rewards for faithfulness. He says in chapter 5, we'll get to this in a couple of weeks, in verse 11 and 12, you are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Be glad. Rejoice. Because your reward is great in heaven. For that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Not just that heaven is a great reward, but that in heaven you have a great reward. 
It's different. Is that the time? All right, here's, here's, here's where I want to land this thing. It, I just want to land to this morning with an invitation to you. We haven't got to his actual teach. Well, we've touched on parts of his teaching. Next week, we're going to start walking slowly through it. We're going to begin with the first 12 verses. We call them the Beatitudes. Just the Latin word beat means um, blessed. So we're going to get to what Jesus says is the blessed life, the happy life. And, and we're going to begin there and then just keep moving through to the end of chapter 7. And here's what I want for us. I want you this morning to receive an invitation from Jesus to the flourishing life. That's my, key, my interpretive key for this whole sermon. It's an invitation not to despair of yourself and just run to God for forgiveness. Way more than that, it's an invitation to life that is flourishing, to shalom peace, to be the person that God made you to be, to live like Jesus. That's the invitation. And so I, just, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm kind of begging you just to keep showing up and just to keep receiving these words from Jesus in faith and trust that he is going to not only increase our understanding of what he's saying, but enable us more and more to actually do it. To live righteous lives. I'm going to pray to that end and then I'm going to invite love to keep praying for us and for the world. So let's pray. Father, we just, we're, we're throwing ourselves on your mercy as we enter into this new teaching series because without you, we just have no hope. We have no hope of understanding it. We have no hope of applying it. And so in that sense, we do despair of ourselves and ask, please be merciful to us. Throughout this series, I pray that you would just break down encumbrances, obstacles, barriers that stand between us and receiving your word as you want us to receive it. And I pray that you would open our hearts like who we are right down deep within, peeling away layers of facade and nonsense and exposing us to all, all that you have for us, to this vision of the flourishing life, of a life well lived in your kingdom on this earth. These are just astronomical aspirations. So, Lord, we need you to move. And I ask that you would do it. Be gracious to us in Jesus' name. Amen.